you know, for many of us, there will be an event, a moment that not only changes the course of our life going forward, but it may even change our relationship to our past. I mean, think, think for example, maybe of a, of a kid who grows up in a deeply underprivileged and under-resourced environment. That, that past that he has is likely very much to determine his future and one that gets passed on even to the next generation. But then, but then imagine that same kid all of a sudden like wins a scholarship to Stanford or Harvard or something, right? All of a sudden that moment like changes everything. It totally opens up a new course for his future. And, and, and it also changes his relationship to his past. His past is still his past, but it's maybe no longer quite so controlling as it was going to be. I think most of us go through things like this. Now, our transformative event might not be as dramatic as the one that I just painted for you. But, but for most of us, something like a a graduation, or winning a scholarship, or a marriage, or a divorce, and maybe freedom from an abusive marriage, or having a child. Things like that, like, they, they alter our lives. Or at least we hope they will. Now, at the heart of the message of Christianity, is that there is such an event that utterly changes the course of our lives. And, and it's already happened. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Not, not just for him, but for everyone sitting here. Now, as I mentioned last week, when we looked at Paul talking about the resurrection, I, I get it. In the modern world, asking someone to believe that somebody got up from the dead is a pretty big ask. I, I totally get that. And I think that maybe is why many have suggested that actually, why do we make such a big deal of it? Because honestly, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, beginning particularly in the 19th century, well-meaning well people who claim to be Christians said, look, why do we keep bothering with the baggage of all this like, difficult supernatural stuff? Jesus' teaching on love is, is profound. His example of self-sacrifice is unparalleled. If people would just follow that, that alone... Would be, would be life-changing, wouldn't it? Let's just go with that. Can't, can't we have the best of Christianity without all of those difficult claims of Jesus getting up from the dead? It's a very modern question. But it isn't just a modern question. It's actually a question that some of the earliest Christians asked as well. And to answer that question, 
we're going to return to Paul's discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning, we're going to pick up where we left off. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 11. Now now we're going to look at verses 12 to 34. Let me let me just read verse 12. If you're, if you're, by the way, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 1021, 1021 in those black Bibles in the pews, 1021. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what some of the Corinthians were saying. There's there's no such thing as a resurrection. People don't get up from the dead. You know, that's a pretty reasonable statement, don't you think? I mean, have you ever seen anybody get up from the dead? Yeah, they hadn't either. People just generally don't get up from the dead. So it's it's a pretty reasonable thing to say. And they were saying it back then. Now, Paul has made the case that the resurrection of Jesus is true. That's what he was doing in verses 1 to 11. Now, when we get to the last part of 1 Corinthians 15, which I'll get to in like two weeks from now, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to make the argument that the resurrection, like we should have expected it. It's, it's like almost necessary given the way the world is set up. We, we shouldn't even be surprised by it. But this week, in our passage this morning, Paul wants to make the case that the resurrection is not only true, it actually matters. It matters. It's not enough that Jesus was a great teacher. It's not enough that he set a profound example. If he did not get up from the dead, all of that other stuff, Paul's going to argue this morning, all of that other stuff is useless. But if he did get up from the dead, his resurrection was not just a life-altering event for him, and I think we'll all grant that getting up from the dead would be (laughs) life-altering. Okay, so it was a life-altering event for him, but no, no, it's also a life-altering event for every one of us who believes in him. Here's Paul's argument. We'll put it on the screen. The resurrection matters because it changes the course of our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ matters because it changes the course of our lives. And we're going to look at it in three different aspects, the way Paul does. It changes our past. It changes our future. And therefore, it changes our present. So first, the the resurrection matters because it changes our past. Look at verse 12 again. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, I think that as modern people, right, we're not surprised that people would question the idea of resurrection in general, not just about Jesus, but about anyone. But it might surprise you that people back then did too. But, but actually, it shouldn't. In the Greco-Roman world, it was common to believe that, that death was the end. Death meant the end of the body. There was, there was no future for the body after death. Now, many people in the ancient Greco-Roman world believed that the soul continued on in some way. And of course, that would be different than typical modern belief. But but the, as far as they were concerned, when you died, I mean, that, that was it for the body. The body was done. It was over. And it was not coming back. In fact, many in the ancient world, <laughs> they considered the body to be the worst thing about being human. And so death was seen as like an escape, like the best thing that could happen to you almost, because you weren't going to be burdened with this hunk of flesh anymore. So I just want to like pause and, and speak to, to some of you here this morning who aren't, aren't Christians. I, I want you to, to understand, I kind of want to underscore here how unusual Christian belief was back then. It's not just today. I, I, th- I think we all tend to be kind of snobs towards the ancient world towards people in the past. But, but here's what I want you to realize. Yeah, people in the past may have been more religious than we are today, generally. But they weren't less skeptical than we are today. They were just as skeptical. Christianity began in an intellectual environment a lot like our own. So I I, I just want to kind of press this on you a little bit. If that's the case, that would mean that Christianity's acceptance, its its success in the ancient world going going on to today, I I don't think we can finally attribute that to to the mistaken idea that people back then were just more gullible or, or more ignorant or more superstitious, because it's just not true. So if we can't attribute the acceptance and growth and and ultimately the success of Christianity to their benighted ignorance, what do we attribute it to? Well, Paul's response to their skepticism is to point out that if there is no resurrection, just in general, then not even Christ has been raised. Perhaps that point had escaped them, I don't know. But you you see him saying that uh, right there in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he's going to repeat it uh, later on in in this section. Paul is underscoring here the full humanity of Jesus Christ. 
If you're around Christians, you'll, you'll hear us talk about Jesus being God, and that is true. But that's not what Paul's emphasizing here. He's emphasizing the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not an angel. Jesus wasn't an apparition that just appeared to be human, but wasn't really. No, he was fully human. And if human bodies are not raised from the dead, then Paul points out, Jesus' body wasn't either. And that has huge consequences. Because as Paul says, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then their their preaching has been in vain. Verse 14, our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. What are you believing in if he didn't get up from the dead? Moreover, he points out, we, we preachers, we're, we're false witnesses about God. We're, we're liars. So why should you accept anything we have to say? You see, it turns out you can't have the moral and ethical teaching of Christianity without the supernatural parts of Christianity. It is a package deal. Not only is Paul a liar if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, he says there in verse 17, the Corinthians, faith is worthless. It's, it's useless. And they are still in their sins. And, and, and what's worse, apparently some of those early Corinthian Christians have, have since died. Since, since they believed in Christ, they, they've died physically. And Paul says those, the language he uses, fallen asleep. That's the way he always talks about the death of believers. He says those who've already died, those who've already fallen asleep, they have perished. Verse 18. What's going on here? Well, it seems that, that some of the Corinthians wanted just sort of a, a, a spiritual Christianity. One that left the body behind at death, but in which maybe their spirits were, were still with God in, in some fashion or another. But Paul says, no. No, if, if, if the dead uh, are, are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, and those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Paul is not repeating himself there. He's not saying those who have died have died. And he's just using two different synonyms. No, no, actually that word perished, he's, he's using a word that is associated with judgment. They're, they're not just dead, they're under condemnation. They are experiencing God's wrath at this moment. And so Paul concludes that if, if hope in Christ is just for this life, that is, if there is no hope for life after death, then he says in verse 19, we Christians should be pitied more than anyone. Why? Well, because they've lived for a lie. They, they've, they've put their hope in something that wasn't even true, and as a result, they have kind of missed out on all the best parts of life. Friends, the resurrection matters for our past. Now, I don't mean the past up to this point, but I mean what we will think of as our past on the last day when we stand before God. 
and we look back at all of our life. That the message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he paid the penalty that we deserve, which is death and the judgment of God. And, and not, just, not just for some of them, but, but for all of our sins, for, for, for everything that we will look back on that last day, when we look back at our life, he will have died for everything that we see back there that causes us shame or guilt. Gosh, on the last day, we'll even see that he died for things that we didn't even know to be ashamed of, that we didn't even know to feel guilty of. He, he died for those things too. All of it. But the only way that we have confidence of this is that he got up from the dead. If he said he died for our sins, but then he stayed dead, maybe he was the liar, right? Maybe he just died for his own sins. Or, or, or if, he, if he said he died for our sins and, and then he stayed dead, maybe it turns out that God said, dude, I didn't want that, you idiot. I'm not accepting that. I wanted something else. No, the resurrection is the proof that Christ did not die in vain. And therefore, our faith in Christ is not in vain. That our sins actually have been forgiven. That, that, that we actually have hope of standing before God on the last day unashamed. Of being right with God now and forever. Friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian, this is what we want for you. I, I don't want a bunch of rules for your life. I, I, I don't want you to be miserable and religious. No, I want you to know that you can be right with God. I, I want you to know that on the last day, you can stand before God unashamed, declared not guilty. And that happens through faith in Christ. That happens as you turn away from trusting in something else, anything else, to change the course of your life, and, and instead trust in Christ and his death and his resurrection for you. That that will change the course of your life, beginning with your past, knowing that your past won't haunt you on the last day. If you'd like to think more about what it would mean to, to trust in Christ, maybe, maybe you've got questions about the resurrection and how thinking people can even believe this. We would love to talk to you more. C come and find one of us down front afterwards. There'll be several of us standing down here. Come and talk to us. We'd love to look at the Bible with you, talk with you, take seriously the questions that you have. But, but friend, do not walk away without grappling with, with this great truth. Jesus really did get up from the dead. And if you will trust that, it will change everything for you. Now, now Christian, I, I, I just want to remind you, your, your assurance, your, your hope for that last day, man, it does not rest on how you feel about yourself today. 
It, it doesn't rest on the kind of day or the kind of week you just had. Your, your assurance, your hope that your past won't haunt you on the last day, it rests on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Faith unites you to Jesus. It unites you to Jesus in his life. It unites you to Jesus in his death. It means that what happened to him happened to you. His righteousness, therefore, is your righteousness. I know a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to be righteous, but it's pitiful. (laughs) It's just pitiful, right? No, we don't need to. We've been given his righteousness. His life is our life. And, And therefore, because he got up from the dead, your past no longer defines you. His past does. Isn't that glorious? Man. In God's estimation, and let's just be really clear on the last day, God's estimation is the only estimation that will matter. In God's estimation, because his life is your life, you are not guilty because he is not guilty. So, Christian, you don't have to live in the the guilt and the shame of your past anymore. So many of us do. So many of us walk around weighed down, burdened by the guilt we feel, things that we've done, the, the shame that we feel of things that we've done or things that were done to us. The, the gospel says, no more. No, you, you've been set free from that. Because it's Christ's past that defines you. It's his life and his righteousness that says who you are. It also means that, that you don't have to to walk around trapped by your past in those, those habits or those vices that characterize the way you used to live. Those things used to have power over you, but they need not anymore because you have been given a different past. You have been given a different life. All of that old stuff, All of that died with Christ on the cross. He took it with him to the grave. He buried it there with him in the tomb. And he didn't bring it with him when he got up. He left it there. He didn't didn't bring it with him and say, hey, hey, thanks for believing me. You you forgot something. No, no, no. He, He left it back there. You don't have to live that way anymore. Because Jesus got up from the dead. The resurrection matters because it changes our past. And that means, second, it changes our future. Look in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. All right, so now Paul goes back to where he started. Jesus did get up from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. Now, if you're, again, if you're not sure of that, let me refer you back to verses 1 to 11. Paul has made the case, he's offered the proof that the resurrection is true. You could go back and listen to the sermon that I preached last week. But what Paul wants to point out now is that, look, this matters for our bodies for the future. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. You see that there in verse 20. He's, he's actually pulling from some different Old Testament images here. In, in the Old Testament, first fruits were, were the offerings that the Israelites brought at the beginning of harvest season. It, it, was, it was a promise, as it were, that, that there was more to come. God was going to be faithful. Uh, the, the, there was going to be a much bigger harvest to come, and so they brought the first bits of it and gave it as an offering to God just in thanksgiving and in trust and in faith that a much larger harvest was still to come. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits, the first fruits of the harvest of righteousness that is going to come at the end of time when the kingdom of God is revealed. His resurrection is not just a guarantee that we and the proof that we've actually been forgiven. No, his resurrection is a promise that there's a lot more of that coming. There's a lot more where that came from. It's a guarantee of our resurrection. Now, that might feel like Paul's just like doing an analogy. But this, there's more than an analogy going on here. There's another Old Testament idea at work. Because Paul points out that this is how God has been working through, through the covenants to accomplish his purposes from the beginning. He says, at the, at, the, at the beginning, Adam stood as our representative. And, and in his fall, we all fell. And, and so death has come to us all. And he says, but, but now Jesus, Jesus stands as a, as a new representative man, a, a, a second Adam representing a, a new race, a, a spiritual race, and through him, all will be made alive, verse 22. That is all who belong to him, verse 23. Now, this is, this is kind of a weird idea, right? This idea that, that, that somebody's representing us and, and what happens to him happens to us so that in Adam's fall and death, we all fell and are subject to death, but, but in, in Christ's resurrection, those of us who belong to Christ are, are also brought to newness of life. I, we, we don't talk this way, but we, but we do in, in some places in our life experience something that, that at least is illustrative, right? Why do we care about the Olympics so much, right? Why do we spend all this time watching sports 
sporting events in the Olympics that we, you couldn't pay me to watch on a typical Saturday, right? Why, why, why is that? It's because those athletes represent us. They're, they're not just competing for themselves, right? They're, they're, they're competing for America. And boy, when the American wins or the American team wins, we win, we win, and we rejoice. And when they lose, we're dejected and we're defeated and we feel like we've lost. So we, we know that experience, right? That, that, that somebody's representing us. And we experience this in other places too. Um, my, my wife and I are both native-born American citizens, which means that every child born to us was an American citizen, no matter where we lived, right? So two of our kids were born in England. But as far as the U.S. government's concerned, they were born in America because they were born to two American citizens. Yes, both Christian and Samuel could grow up someday to be president. I don't think they will. <laughs> but, but they could. They didn't have to be naturalized, right? So something that was true about us, me and Adrian, we kind of represented them as their parents, and they benefited from it. So, so there, there are places like this where we, we begin to get a feel for it. But in the ancient Near East, this is the way covenants worked. What, what happened to the person that was at the head of the covenant then became true for everyone he represented. All of the subjects under that king were now bound or benefited by whatever that king received in that covenant. This is what's going on here. This is the promise that, that traces back through Israel to Abraham all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and the seed of the woman, when God promised that one day there would be a seed that came from the woman that would crush the serpent's head. We Christians are a chosen race in Jesus he, he represented us, and in his resurrection, we are not only made alive spiritually, but we are going to know an eternal life in resurrection bodies, in a new creation of heaven and earth. Now, again, let me just say, partly to those of you who are here this morning that might be skeptics, might be not Christians, but also maybe to some of the Christians here, what, what Paul's doing here is really significant, even for our life today. God started with a physical creation, and he has not given up on that idea. Christian hope is not about a nebulous spirituality, a kind of spiritual existence, you know, cherubs floating in the clouds, playing harps. That's not the idea. No, no Christian hope. Is about reality, like hard, physical reality. We, we don't think that the physical world is bad or evil. That's kind of like an old Greek idea. But we do think that this world is corrupted and needs to be made new. But, but we don't think that God's moving on to something else and better, having been done with the physical world. 
And therefore, it is not a coincidence that things like modern science and, and the idea of progress developed in the Christian world first. I think that's something we need to think about. If you're not a Christian, this is something I want you to grapple with a little bit. That, that this idea of the goodness of creation, that we can understand it and even improve it, Actually, this is a deeply Christian idea, and it's rooted in what Paul is talking about here, that on the last day, we don't move on to something entirely different, but rather, we are brought into resurrection bodies in a new creation. Now, apparently, some were skeptically asking why it hasn't already happened. And Paul points out that just as there's an order to a harvest, so there is an order to the harvest of the new creation. He says there in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards, when he returns, those who belong to him. And at that point, Paul says, Jesus is going to hand over the kingdom to his father, there in verse 24. Well, what is Jesus doing in the meantime? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's reigning as king. He is sitting on the throne of heaven, and he is conquering his enemies. He is conquering, as we see there in, in verse uh, 24, every rule and power and authority that is opposed to him. Paul, Paul is referring there to, to spiritual authorities, demonic authorities, that, that hold men and women in bondage to Satan. And, and he's declaring that, that through the gospel, right now, Jesus is setting men and women free from that bondage. Maybe you're here and you know something of that bondage. You, you, you know what it's like to have something about yourself that you hate, but that you keep going back to, that you, you simply cannot rescue yourself from. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus sets you free from that. He is conquering he is conquering not only those, those spiritual slaveries that you experience, oh, but he's, he's conquering his own people, right? He, he's, he's subduing us to himself in love. He, he's bringing us into his kingdom. The last opposition that Jesus will abolish, Paul says, is death itself. Verse 26, and that will happen when he returns in final judgment. Now, Paul is, is not just being like a religious optimist at this point. He's actually being a realist based on what God has already said. There in verse 27, he quotes Psalm 8, verse 6. God has put everything under his feet. Now, when the psalmist said that in Psalm 8, the psalmist was reflecting on humanity as the pinnacle of creation. But what has Paul just pointed out? Jesus is the second Adam. He's the beginning of a new and greater humanity. He is the head of a new creation. And therefore, when, when we're told God has put everything under his feet, everything actually means everything, including death itself. Friends, this is why we have hope that our bodies will be resurrected, not just because Jesus was. That could have been just for him. 
No, it's because he was resurrected to reign. And what he is doing right now is reigning as a victorious and conquering king, defeating all of his enemies one by one in just the right order. Things perhaps seem like they're out of control. We read the news, we watch what's going on in the world, or we look at what's going on in our own families, and we have this feeling that everything is just out of control, and how can I keep it together? But Christian, I'm here to tell you, things are not out of control. Jesus has his battle plan, and he's executing it. First, he's subduing his own people in love through the gospel. And he's going to keep doing that until everyone has been brought in. And then next will come the final judgment at his return and the overthrow of all evil. And finally, the end of death itself as God's own people enter into an eternal bodily life freed from all sin, all sickness, death itself. So Christian, have hope. Have hope. Jesus is on his throne. I know you can't see him. Oh, but he's at work. You're proof. He conquered you. He conquered your doubts. He's conquering your sin. He's continuing to do that. Have hope. And not only is he conquering, he's actually brought you into his conquering army. How are you part of his conquering army? By being someone out there who's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Our battle is not against flesh and blood against spiritual authorities in high places. And our weapons are not the weapons of this world. They're not swords. They're not ballot boxes. No, our weapons are the weapons of the truth of the gospel. God's word, prayer, and persevering faith. Those are our weapons. So don't confuse what battle you're in, Christian. The battle that Jesus is fighting is not won by winning elections or reclaiming the culture. The battle that Jesus is fighting is won by the proclamation of the good news that Jesus got up from the dead. Don't confuse what battle you're in. There are no promises about all those other battles going on out there. And I get it, there are a lot of them. And it's not that they're not important, they, they, they are important. And to some extent, all of us are going to be engaged in them. But don't confuse what the ultimate battle is because it is really easy to lose hope in those other battles because those other battles don't always go the way we want them to go. And there's no promise they will. Oh, but the battle that Jesus is waging, friends, it has been won. And it will be won. So keep your head, Christian. Keep your head. Keep your hope. Stay in the right war. Stop getting pulled into the wrong war. Stay in the right war because we have every confidence about that one. When the last enemy death is defeated, Jesus, the conquering king, will hand the kingdom back to his father, we're told, subject to the father himself as the son, and God will be all in all. Now, just a brief pause here. This will be of interest to some of you and of no interest to others of you. But the point here is not that there is inequality in the Trinity. 
No, what Paul is talking about here is the work of redemption, the, the new creation that is being brought about through the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. What, what, what Paul is talking about here is that the Father is both the one who subjects everything to the Messiah, the Christ, in order to exalt the Son, but, but the Father is also the one to whom all things will finally be subjected. Jesus, as the God-man, not as the eternal second person of the Trinity, but as the incarnate God-man is the true and better Adam. Like Adam, all things were subject to him. But unlike Adam, Jesus does what Adam did not do. Jesus rules not for his own glory. Jesus rules not in his own name, but for God's glory and for God's name. So what is eternal life going to be like? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple of weeks. But, but right here, we can at least observe that eternal life in a resurrected body is not just like this life, but unending. That would not be heaven. That would be miserable. To have to take this body forever? Oh, please no. Right? No, what, what, we, what we learn here is that eternal life and resurrection bodies will be a reigning with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. All that Adam and Eve were meant to be and to do, we will be and do. But better, because their bodies were susceptible to death, because they were susceptible to sin and we will not be on that day. What will it be like? Again, we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, that preview, like, we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is it will not be immaterial. It won't be a bodiless existence. It will be the kind of life that requires bodies and the kind of life that bodies are good for. Now, right now, as my tense machine just turned off, my body is reminding me of its weakness and decay. But my body then will not need a tens machine. I don't know what it will be like, but it will be glorious. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it, it changes our past. We're, we're, we're forgiven, we're, we're set free, and it changes our future. Glory awaits. But both of those things mean that third, the resurrection of Jesus matters because it changes our present. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. All right, 
Paul asks a question that to him seems really obvious, but to us seems really weird. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? What in the world is Paul talking about there? It sounds like sort of justification for what the Mormons do. You know, they research their genealogies and they get baptized for dead ancestors to release those dead ancestors from hell. Well, that can't be right. For one thing, Mormonism didn't exist at this point. And nowhere does the New Testament teach that baptism is saving. It's faith that saves. So what is baptism? Well, baptism is how we publicly identify with Christ. So what in the world is Paul talking about? I think Paul is pointing to the significance of the symbolism of baptism, kind of what it means. When someone is baptized, they're immersed in water. We lay them back down in water like we're laying them into a grave. And then they're raised up out of the water as if they're being resurrected. In in doing so, in being baptized, and this applies even if a different mode of baptism was used, that that individual is identifying with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In baptism, we're saying what happened to him has happened to me because I'm with him. I'm connected to him. I'm united to him by faith. So I think what is going on in in this question that he's asking, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? The dead in this verse refers to the person being baptized. We are dead in our sins. And we are saying we have died with Christ. And, And we are now raised to newness in life in Christ. Now, why do that if it doesn't really happen? if there is no resurrection, if there's nothing that the symbol actually points to. Now, understanding the question that way then makes sense of what he says next, because at the moment it just feels like a non sequitur. Why be baptized for the dead, and why do I face death every day and fight wild beasts? Like, huh? No, he's pointing to himself here, and he's he's saying, okay, well, why do I face death every day for the sake of the gospel, for, for my boast in you and your conversion? there in verse 31. Why, why, did I, why did I fight wild beasts in Ephesus, there in verse 32, which is not a reference to actual wild beasts because Roman citizens were not subject to that form of punishment, and Paul was a Roman citizen. This is just the way he's referring to his human opponents. They opposed him like wild beasts. He does it multiple times in his letters. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. No, no his point with both of these, the symbolism of baptism and, and, and what he is doing is that, look, no one would risk death, which is what I'm doing. I'm risking death every day. No one would risk death, which is the greatest of all risks, unless you were confident it was worth it, unless you were confident that there was something better on the other side. If you're you're confident that death isn't the end, then you're willing to risk death. But, But if not... You're just going to be like those cynical people that we read about in Isaiah earlier in the service, who, who had no faith, no hope at all. They're just like, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. You, if there's nothing after death, then you, then you make the most of this life. You do whatever you need to do to make the most of this life. You, you realize YOLO, you only live once, is not irrational if there is no resurrection. It actually makes a lot of sense. But if there is something 
more, if there is something better, then YOLO is utter folly. This is Paul's point. And this, I think, is where the real issue for the Corinthians and for many of us comes clear. They want to indulge the flesh. They, they want to engage in all the things that Paul has been condemning in this letter from sexual immorality to greed to basically just living a really self-centered life. And the way they're going to get there is by rejecting the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And it doesn't matter who I do it with. But Paul rebukes them. He, he quotes actually a secular proverb to them. Bad company corrupts good morals. The people teaching that there was no resurrection are the bad company. And he says to them, look, you need to come to your senses. You need to stop sinning. Because of the resurrection, you need to come to your senses. Being a Christian is being someone who understands that you have died with Christ to that old way of life and that you are now raised to a new life and you are living for something better. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, he said he wasn't trying to shame them. But in chapter 6, when they were suing each other, he said, yeah, I'm saying this to your shame. And now he's doing it again. I say this to your shame. That's how brazen their folly is. Christian, the resurrection is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The, the resurrection doesn't detach us from this life as if it doesn't matter what we do anymore. No, no the, the resurrection attaches us to this life actually much more firmly. It, it grounds our life in a life of self-sacrificing love. It grounds our life in a life of ongoing repentance because the resurrection is true. We know that something far greater than this life is at stake. So, so I just want to say to you, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, what the Puritans used to say Work to improve your baptism. Improve your baptism. What does that mean? It, it, it means think about what that baptism represented. You died to the old way of life. You've been raised to newness of life. Th therefore, our lives should be increasingly evident that resurrection life is at work in us. As, as we yearn toward the consummation of the last day. Life, wherever it is, wants to grow. It, it, it wants to develop. It wants to mature. This, this weekend, we were out in our backyard, uh, you know, just doing gardening because it's spring. It's time to do gardening. And, you know, a whole bunch of stuff out there when, at a distance looks like it's dead. And you know what? Some of it was. And we just cut that stuff away. But you could tell the stuff that was still alive, even though it kind of looked dead. Why? Because there were these little green shoots coming up. It wasn't really dead. This is, this, is, this is the way life is. Life wants to grow. It wants to develop. It wants to mature. Those of you who claim to be Christians, look at your lives. Do, do you see evidence of life? 
Do, do you see evidence of growth? Are, are you wanting in your inner being to press in deeper, to, to see this resurrection life develop even more in you? If not, then, then you need to ask the question that I pressed last week as well. Why are you so sure you're alive? All of us would like to see the course of our lives change. Ah, there's no one here who's not in some way or another dissatisfied. What, what are you looking for? What, what, what event are you hoping is going to happen that's going to change everything? You know, the thing about all those things that we look for, whether it's graduation or marriage or a baby or whatever, Maybe it's retirement. The thing about all those other events is the change they bring is temporary. It's uncertain. It's insecure. But not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be united with him by faith through baptism is to experience in your life the event that is the very fulcrum of history itself that changes everything. To be united to Christ is to be united to him in his death and in his resurrection. You will never be the same because you will have been set free from your past, guaranteed in your future and given something worth risking your very life for today. So I ask you, what are you waiting for? Would you pray with me? Take a moment. Consider your own life. And consider what it would mean for you to, to live today as if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually true. Whether that means putting your faith in him initially. Or whether that means living that faith out more boldly. Consider that before God and just bring it to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that, that our talk about res resurrection would not just be religious talk. Lord, we pray that indeed the resurrection life of Christ would be powerfully at work in us and in our church. That, that, that people would be able to see our lives, see the way our lives have changed, see the way our lives are being set free from that which enslaves so many, and that they then would be given hope and confidence that indeed Jesus got up from the dead. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work causing resurrection life to be evident in us. And we ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.